Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Seattle, Washington, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat. Because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call and we'll talk about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, and now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. All right. uh, HackerNoon.com headline. If you opened your PayPal account before you were 18, close it now. Everyone has a horror story about PayPal. I've had several painful experiences with them over the last decade, but now I'll never have to experience that again as I've just been permanently banned. As a teenager, my mother may have wanted me outside on the field with everyone else, but I was in my bedroom in 2006 learning HTML, CSS, and these fancy technologies called Ajax and jQuery. Eventually, these skills became useful and I found myself at the ripe age of 17, realizing there was money to be made on the internet and this was where my life was heading. Without much thought, I set up a PayPal account. I didn't really make a lot of money, but that wasn't the point. It was fun, and I learned a lot about web development and a ton about the entrepreneurial life. I do a lot of work these days trading services with a friend named Matt. Rather than use a bank transfer or Western Union for payments, we decided to use PayPal. Now, I have some large automotive bills coming up, and I was going to be... This is the writer talking. He says, I'm going to be using PayPal... Uh, It should have been a quick way for Matt to send me some money that would have been in my bank account within the hour, or so I thought. So the article goes on to say that he basically got a notification, and the notification said that he'd received a payment. So he goes into his mobile app, and he tries to do something with that payment, withdraw to his bank account. And as soon as he opens his mobile app, he gets a message. And the message says, your account has been limited, nothing more. So he writes, I've dealt with PayPal randomly freezing my account before. Most people have. And so I withdraw money instantly so that they can't hold it ransom. Now, full stop right there. Let's stop and talk about this, the the holding money ransom. What he's talking about is by far my largest complaint with PayPal. If you have money inside of your PayPal account, they treat it almost as if it's their money and they're letting you use it or have access to it. And they're doing you some sort of favor and if, if anything comes into question, if there's ever a problem, it's your responsibility to prove that you actually owned your money. Now, a very frequent use case for me is that I have a bunch of different company cards. So I have a card for AltaSpeed. I have, obviously, my personal cards. And then there are certain clients that we work with on a such, uh, on a such regular basis. That if, So, for example, a lot of times a contract will specify me as an individual, not the company, as holding the contract. So there are a couple places that we work with that AltaSpeed, I mean, we process payments through AltaSpeed, but the person who signed the contract, the person that's on the contract, the contract is with me personally. And the way that that works is a lot of times they will, a lot of times they'll give you a cell phone, a lot of times they'll give you hardware that they want you to use a specific laptop, and sometimes that will come with an actual company card. And so when I need to go make purchases, a lot of times I will just add those to my PayPal account. Now I could, I suppose, 
set up a separate email address for every single business that I work with and add every single card to those respective accounts. But at the moment, I have multiple cards added to my PayPal account, and what ends up happening is they end up charging the wrong card. Now, you would think that once you sent a payment on a given card, it would continue to use that same card. You would think that, but you would be wrong. In fact, the best I can tell, PayPal basically lets you choose what card you'd like to use. And then, but there's no option for if that card doesn't work, if there's for any reason there's a problem with that card, just don't run that transaction. Don't pay that bill. Notify me or let me take action or give me an option. It just magically decides that it's going to pay something else. And so what ends up happening is that my business stuff winds up on my personal card. Sometimes my personal card winds up on a business card. And of course, worst of all, is like I was saying, if I have a card that has been given to me by a client and then PayPal decides to arbitrarily use their card instead of, you know, whatever card it was supposed to be on, it just creates a huge mess. Not to mention the fact that PayPal customer service, when you try to get them to undo a transaction and say, that was on the wrong card, you can go ahead and charge the other card first to make sure I'm not screwing the seller out of money. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to steal anything here. I just want you to put the charge on a different card. They won't even do that. And last but not least, if you have money in your PayPal account, they will use it first, usually. Um, in fact, maybe they've changed this recently, but it used to be you had to use your PayPal balance, which basically amounts to what this guy is talking about and a sentiment that I share, which is I don't want anything to do with storing money in PayPal because they're not a bank. And if they were a bank, they'd be like the world's worst bank. Uh, okay, so... I, you can tell I get hot and bothered about this. Back to the piece. So, ever the golden standard of useful error messages, PayPal informed me that my account was limited. Although I wasn't sure what that meant, I quickly realized after trying to get any amount of money out of my PayPal account that it meant my account had been suspended. Upon logging into the desktop version, I hit a screen and there was a message that warned that my account information was shared with an account that had a problem. Now that sounds quite alarming because I had been the victim, had I been the victim of fraud, I only have one account. Has someone copied my address or my bank details? More confusing was the need to appeal. I wasn't really sure what I was appealing. I just wanted to withdraw my own money from my almost decade-old account. As usual, I had a cold sense of dread when it came to clicking the contact us button. It's the first footstep in a battleground you know is, going to un is unlikely you're ever going to win the war. Nevertheless, it was my only option. I went to bed expecting to hear back after a week of something from PayPal. However, PayPal got back to me rather quickly to let me know they were banning me and would be holding my money for six months. Okay, full stop again. I have never had a pleasant experience with PayPal when I contact their 1-800 number, whatever. You call in and you go around in circles and they have this idiotic pin system that you have to log into your account. So if you're having trouble logging into your account, right off the bat, you're starting at a disadvantage. And then even if you can get into your account, you get the stupid pin that you read these people. Half of them don't. They follow a script. A new growing trend in customer service that's starting to really drive me nuts is when part of the script is, no problem, I'll be happy to help you with that, or I'll be happy to solve that for you. If once you tell me that, if, one, if you open the conversation with, I'm happy to solve that for you or fix that for you, my assumption is that at the end of the conversation, it will be fixed. And if you don't know if you can fix it for me, then don't tell me that. It just, it kind of drives me nuts. Uh, so anyway, so, so anyway, so he, um, so he, he, he copies over everything to them. He sends them a copy of his, uh, of his driver's license, you know, to prove who he is, all, all of this kind of stuff. And PayPal's answer was to 
just totally uh, to, to not only take the money that he had in his account and hold it for six months, but to ban him that account from PayPal. And so he has screenshots of the messages that he received from PayPal. He actually documented this whole process very, very well. I was really impressed. And basically, it says that they're closing his account because he opened it before he was 18 years old. Now, I understand that that may be against PayPal's terms of service. And I am not advocating that, we sh that, people, that any individual shouldn't be held to the terms of service on PayPal. If, you, if, if PayPal has rules, you should agree to the rules or you should expect to be banned from PayPal. However... One, it seems a little arbitrary that 10 years later, they're going after this guy for PayPal. Or PayPal is going after this guy for, you know, this 10-year-old thing. And second of all, it seems kind of like it's an arbitrary, they had to go digging for a reason to shut his PayPal account down. I'm, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what, what really the purpose here is. You know, I was reading this article, and every one of these problems this guy has had, minus having his account permanently shut down, I have also faced. Now, there are a few services that I personally find more disgusting and vile on the internet than PayPal. I think they are one of the worst service providers on the internet. In fact, if they didn't have agreements with so many places that force you to use them, I honestly believe like 90% of people would just bail off of PayPal right now. I mean, there's a couple of people that really like them uh, because they mostly because they don't they've, they've not used a lot of other services. And so they don't have a lot of experience with how good the world can be. And they think that they're relegated to doing all their banking through PayPal. But they're single-handedly the most irritating company I think I have to deal with on a daily basis. one 450 that's one 450 Give me a call. I want to hear about your PayPal horror stories. And uh, I'd like to hear if anyone's had problems with PayPal. So what alternatives do we have? As you'd expect from the Ask Noah show, we've spent several hours of meticulous research to bring solutions to you before you even have to go looking for them. Now, a few years ago, when we were doing Linux Fest Northwest, we purchased a square card reader to take payments at the booth. And it worked so well that actually, after I returned home to Grand Forks, I started playing with them. I started trying the different things that they had. So they have, they have like a POS system. They have just one that plugs into your phone. And I was, I was blown away. And since that time, I have set up, I don't know how many setups, with an Android tablet and the little square card readers that plug in. And it's a fantastic setup. It, does, it really works great. The hardware is great. The interface is slick. The um, <clears throat> D word that rhymes with uh, Crash Lord is amazing. But uh, what really makes Square stand out is their customer service. Full disclaimer, I don't know anyone at Square, much less are they giving me anything to promote their product. They have earned this through their exemplary customer service. I've only had one issue where we were setting up a Square POS system, and basically we launched the Square POS system, but it had a very high initial volume. So they started out because it was, it was a business that was going from an existing POS. So they already had a customer base. They already had people that were purchasing stuff. So they just kind of stopped business doing on cards one day and started doing it on Square. Well, Square is really designed for small startups. Not that they don't scale, but Square is really designed for small business owners. So when you process $25,000, you know, in the first couple of days in revenue, that's just not really what Square expects. And so it triggered some sort of fraud alert, and uh, they, they, they decided they were going to hang on to the captured funds for 30 days. So they got their money, and it was 30 days, but it was a big deal, especially to them. Um, I have since gone through their website, and they actually have – I believe they now have a process where you can tell them, I'm going to have a high initial volume. I'm going to be processing X amount of transactions. So uh, you, know, you, might want to, you might want to expect a higher, higher, uh, higher thing. So – you know, that would be something to to consider if you're going this way. 
Um, everything else uh, has been flawless. I have used Square for – we now process all of our payments inside of AltaSpeed. If you come into the shop – and I actually had somebody right before Ask Noah like two weeks ago come into the shop and ask me about the if we, if we sold products. And the thing is we're primarily a service call-based company, right? You call us and you tell us that your network is down or you tell us you want us to come install something. We come out to your site and we install it. Now we have a building that we operate out of. That you know we store we stock hardware and stuff like that, but it's not really designed for people to just walk into the shop and buy something. It's we don't really have a storefront, so to speak. But we every, every now and then we have somebody walk in and they want to buy something that we do have in stock, and so we sell it to them. And for that purpose, we use a square card reader, and it's worked actually really really well. Um, so beyond that, uh, if you're thinking to yourself, I don't run a business. And I don't, I just need to be send money to my friends. Hang in there with me. And it's it, it, sometimes it takes me a little bit to get you there. But if you hang with me, I will get you there every single time. So enter Square Cash. Square Cash is an application that you download on your phone. It's a smartphone app. And it has all of the great customer service that I just got done telling you about Square, except it's tailored towards personal use. Square Cash is a personal version that uh, instead of taking debit or credit cards, you link your debit or credit card or your bank account to your Square Cash account, and then you can cash any other Square Cash account money. The initial appeal was that they had instant deposits right into your bank account. And when I say instant, I mean that if I open my bank accounts app on my phone and I make a Square Cash deposit, Sometimes I have to close out of the app and open the app back up because the deposit is so fast, the bank app doesn't even refresh. And I know that PayPal is now, I think they're offering something kind of similar, but they have burned me so many times and so many other people that I know that there's no way I'd go back. Personal transfers, there are no fees. So if you want to send money to your friends, absolutely no fees. Now, I bank with a lot of internet-only banks, which means I have no brick-and-mortar place to go into. And that's great because I usually get a higher interest rate because they're not paying for people to be there. It usually means I can manage everything from my D word that rhymes with rashboard, and I never have to talk to a human. The downside is I have no immediate access to depositing funds. So there's a couple ways you can do that. If you bank with Simple or Ally or Capital One Online, you can purchase a money order. And then you can take a picture of the money order and deposit it if you don't use cash very often. The other thing you can do is you can open a local bank account at a credit union or something like that and deposit your cash there and then just transfer it to your main laptop. Now, the downside to doing that is it takes about three days. And that's kind of a and, – and, you know, that, that can slow you down, especially if – you know, you want to make a big purchase and you want to deposit, you know, some money or some cash or something like that. And you want to have access to that right away. Now, technically, it's against the terms of Square Cash Service to cash yourself money. So, of course, I have never done that. And, of course, I would not be able to go on the air and tell you that it works flawlessly and that they've never said anything about it. That has never happened. But what I could tell you is that – and I do this quite often, actually. I will send my uh, – let's say I want to move money from account A to account B. So per their terms of service, I can't just send it. So what I'll do is I'll take money in account A and I'll send it to my wife. And then I'll have my wife cash me back money to account B. That, as far as I can tell from reading their terms of service, does not violate – it may violate the spirit of what they're saying to do, but it doesn't violate the, the actual letter of the, the law as it were. 
Uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes on how to get started with Square Cash, as well as a link for the arsing script that I promised you guys last week and then forgot like a goldfish. I walked out of the studio and and um, and uh, and we were we had dinner plans last uh, last week, and so we I I ran out and I just tried to finish as fast as I could and get the show notes out, and then people messaged me and said, "Hey, you promised us this arsing script, and you never gave it, so it'll be coming out this week, I promise." But Square Cash is absolutely legitimate. I I, I really like it. Um, one eight five five four five zero Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. Jonathan in Arkansas. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. How are you? Excellent. How can we help today? <clears throat> well, I don't know that it's how can you help. It's just honestly, over the last uh, few, uh, probably the last over the last year that I've been listening to last, that you've been talking to Chris about various different laptops that you guys have gone through. Right, and you uh, you pretty well go th- uh, through about the same thing that I do. I am um, uh, an IT for a uh, net admin for a MSP, local MSP. I'm always having to go into different places, and I right. do not like to have a bag full of dongles and that kind of thing. So uh, I have been trying to search for laptops, and you and I both are on that same 13 inch screen size. <clears throat> um, I was wondering if you had looked at the like the Dell Latitude, and I'm looking at it. I think it's the 7280 series. Okay. Uh, they're right around a thousand dollars, but I think they're like 12 and a half inch screens. But they're 1920 by 1080 screens, and um, I have the uh, it's the older one. I'm kind of like you. I buy them off of eBay. They're cheaper and work just as well. But uh, I, buy, I bought the 7250 and run uh, Ubuntu on it. I have to dual boot between it and Windows, and I have no problems. And it's been great. It has a full uh, HDMI port, uh, USB 3, Ethernet jack that I can plug directly in without having to carry anything, and thin light. I take it with me everywhere. What processor so. does it have? Mine has a uh, i7. Now I, I couldn't tell you what generation that it is, but um, solid state hard drive though. Um, I will say it doesn't have a CD-ROM, but then again, I can't think of the last time that I used a CD-ROM. Interestingly so, enough, uh, right this very moment, I need a CD-ROM. But for the most part, I agree. I don't. <laughs> I never use it. Yeah, you know. So the thing well, I've noticed, I looked at the Latitude series, and one of the things I noticed right off the bat was um, every, they meet every single box except I couldn't find the stinking thing with the Core i7 in it. It seems as though the the latest <laughs> Dell lineup in Latitudes, they have this uh, mobile series processor that is like kind of a a neck down version of the i7. I guess. Have you seen this? I have, uh, and, and I, that was one of the reasons why I was kind of hesitant to uh, kind of suggest it to you, but I've also heard you say a few times that you really don't do anything, you know, hardcore and heavy right. with what you do. You just, I want to go in, I want to get the terminal up, I want to go in and pull a web browser up. And for me, I mean, that's typically the same type of stuff that I'm having to go in and do. I need to be mm-hmm. able to uh, connect to connect to my hotspot right there so I can download a file, put it on a USB, and put it in a computer for somebody. And like I say, I have absolutely no trouble with it. My battery life is, I couldn't really give a outright, but I'd say it's between five and six hours easily. Um like I say, I have absolutely no trouble with it at all, but, you know, it just sounds like that you and I have are kind of similar in what we want. I don't want to lug around a 15-inch screen or especially a 17-inch screen. I want something that I can actually take and throw into a bag if I need to and walk in, and I do that with this laptop every day. 
So. Yeah, I've, I've actually I've told people numerous times. I've said if you think that you can get away with a 15 inch laptop or a 17 inch laptop, you don't fly because if you go on an airplane, you try and take a 15 inch laptop. Good luck, man. I mean, I barely fit in oh, those seats, much less me, you know, putting this on my lap. And I tell you, you know, you're right about that. And I'm glad you did call in actually because I have I have looked at the latitude at numerous times and, and I I was I teetering back and forth. The thing is, Dell has really sunk their teeth into Linux this year. They are really yeah. making a commitment and betting big, and they're putting a lot of money behind it, which makes me think that they have some maybe some industry insights that maybe I don't have on where where we're going to be with Linux at the end of the year. And of course, we always want to support companies that are supporting Linux. So I, you know, that I have that in the back of my mind. And you're right. I don't really actually. I probably don't really use what would be an i even an i5. Really, if you think about it, I use Firefox. I use Chrome. I use Thunderbird. I use a right. terminal. I use uh, Telegram. And now lately, I don't know how. I've been living under a rock apparently. But my newest uh, kick is Sublime Text. I'm starting to do all of my work now in Sublime Text. And how I missed out on this well, for years, I, I, I don't know. Oh, do you? Okay. Actually, use Adam. I use Adam instead of Sublime Text, and and if it makes you feel any better, I'm actually still on Simple Text as uh, Simple Note. I still use that going back and forth for everything, and so um, that's still there. But I mean, like I say, I don't. I, that's the same boat that I'm in. I don't really need anything, and uh, I don't have to have all that stuff. And I don't necessarily fly all that much, but you know, when I walk into a networking closet that somebody said, yes. oh. This uh, this one foot by one foot space is going to be good enough for all of our network equipment. I don't want it used to be a broom closet laptop. Absolutely, I don't want it to be some big. You know, I don't want to have some seventeen inch that I've got to haul in. As a matter of fact, I don't want to throw my back out taking it around with me everywhere. So. Yeah, Either way, I, yeah, man, like you, I say, um, you know, here's here's my other thought, too. And, and I, you know, and I thank you for the call. I my, my other thought is and I, I don't exactly know how to square this is what do I do when I go online and I see this Dell that does check all the boxes and, and maybe but, you know, maybe it has a slightly less powerful processor. And I look at it and I say, well, I don't really need the more powerful processor. But at the same time, I can get the, the same computer with the more powerful processor for a couple hundred dollars less over here at this other manufacturer that maybe I don't particularly care for the company and maybe the customer service is bad. But they make a quality product for less money that has – that's the part I have a hard time squaring. It's like, well, I'm going to spend this money and I'm not going to get as powerful as a computer. Even if I don't actually need it, for some reason it just kind of grates on me the wrong way. Chris is with us from Canada. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How's it been going tonight? Excellent. How can we help today? Okay. Um, I'm in the midst of trying to plan out a long-term deployment of Linux, or at least trying to swap my systems over eventually. i got got basically 120 PCs, and I'm working backwards, and I'm at the stage where how do I do a mass deployment of just wiping the windows that's on them right now and getting Linux on them? Are they all configured the same? They are all pretty much configured the same. I've done that myself over the last five or six years, yes. Well, I'll tell you the, the proper answer, the correct answer, is to use something like a management software like Puppet. And what you would do is you would, you would essentially install the Puppet you know, client, and then, you would, then once you set it up the first time, then you can push all of the configuration changes down, and they'll all change. And the advantage to doing it that way is you always have a central point of control for all of those systems. So that's the correct answer. Here's what I would actually do if you if you hire if you hired AltaSpeed and we actually came in and you told us to do 120 computers. If you told us to do 10,000, we would be we'd be setting a puppet because there's just, just no way, right? But for 120 computers, what I would probably do 
is I would take a the first computer and I would set it up exactly the way I want it. And I would make a Clonezilla image of it and I would store it up on the network and I would just pixie boot all those computers and uh, and just one by one. It'd probably take you, what, 15, 20 minutes to go to each one of those, power them on, hit F12, go to pixie boot, enter, click through the, the Clonezilla menu. I mean maybe you're looking at two, three minutes you know, per computer. So maybe it'd take you, I guess, two hours. But uh, to me, the hassle of actually setting up Puppet and then maintaining Puppet and updating Puppet and managing all of that stuff, is that's a huge overhead. The only reason I would go back to the puppet model is if you think you're going to be – if you think you're going to have to make a lot of changes on an ongoing basis, I would probably go to a management solution of sorts. Does that make sense to you? That does, yeah. My, 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 in my uh, early paranoia, unfortunately, I've handicapped myself where I've locked down the BIOS and eliminated the ability for the PCs to pixie boot because I didn't want mm. something else coming along and commandeering them. Sure. Well, if you're going so, to have, what? I mean, again, again, you look at it from the, the sunk cost analysis, right? If you look at, if you look at the fact that you're going to have to take manual intervention on every one of those computers, regardless of what you do at this point, rather you, rather you go in and boot off of a USB drive and install Clonezilla, or if you configure Puppet on each one of those machines, one way or another, you're going to touch every all 120 of those machines at this have point. To go back and touch them all. Okay, yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, that's not. So, I guess what I would base my decision on going forward is how. How much? How much? Uh, how much? You know, ch how many changes are you going to need to make to each one of these machines going forward? Yeah, it won't. It won't be much because they've been static as they are. Yeah. Um, for a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, and the other advantage to Clonezilla, I tell you, and we do this all the time. In fact, I don't know if we have a. There's certainly not a contract customer we don't that that is out of this loop. But I think even most of the places that we go to on a regular basis. We will take their machines that they use, their what you call standard configuration, and we'll take that and make a Clonezilla, Im, Clonezilla image of that, and we store it on a hard drive. In if they have a safe there, we we'll store it there. If they prefer us to take it, then we store it on our safe back at the shop. But um, if they ever need a new computer, we can provision a new workstation for them without ever taking the old one out of production. And you know that's that's really nice too. So you know yeah. it's not necessarily what I'm saying is it's not necessarily limited to their network. You can take that Clonezilla image and bring it over, you know, back to your shop where you're working on it, or you can take it home and work on it or, or whatever. So there's, you know, and, and if you if you're if you're doing puppetus, if it's locally hosted, then you're gonna have to you're gonna have to jump through some hoops to make that work. The other thing I might look at, and I'll have a link for you in the show notes because I don't remember the name of the project off the top of my head, but there is another project and what it aims to do is and chat room, maybe you guys can help me with this and I'll 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 say it right here on the air. But there is a project that that aims to be the policy active directory thing of Linux. And it's a, it's a free and open source project. And basically you provision these Linux computers on this service of sorts. And then you can, you know, do a lot of remote management and stuff like that. A lot of the way that we would manage uh, window stations. Um, so that might be something to look at too. And if, if I, if I don't get the name of it in the, in the, uh, if nobody in the chat room happens to know what the name of that software is, I will have it linked for you in the show notes afterwards. So back to Square Cash, my, uh, my love uh, this hour. Let me give you an example of when Square Cash really sets itself apart. Let's say you or five or ten people go out to dinner together. And when you're at dinner, you sit down and maybe the restaurant server says, we don't split checks, um, you know, among parties. Somebody has to kind of pick it up. Or you can all chip in towards it, but we're not going to give everyone a separate tab. And that actually happened to us like 30 days ago, 60 days ago when we were at uh, uh, Texas. At Dell, we went out to the Salt Lake, and the server said we don't do separate tabs. So what do you do? You got ten people. It's like a two hundred and fifty dollar tab. No one person wants to pick up a two hundred and fifty dollar tab. 
But at the same time, like, what do you, you split it all evenly? Like certain people ordered a lot more food. Some people ordered drinks. Some people didn't. So how do you do that? Well, Square Cash, because it is instantaneous, you can literally sit around the table and everyone chip in for what they paid or what they ordered. And they give that all to one person and one person sets their debit card in the tray. And because it's instantaneous, that money is instantaneously available for the server to process. Now, what you're saying is, Noah, why wouldn't everyone just throw actual cash down and, and chip in towards the, the purchase of this bill? That works. However, there are some places that uh, they, they won't run a bazillion cards and I don't carry cash. On my wallet, I have four things in my wallet. I have my business card, my personal card, my handgun carry permit, and my driver's license. That's it. I don't carry a single dime of cash. So for me, the ability to give money to another person if we're out to eat or something like that has – we have done this I don't know how many times. In fact, I was at DEF CON last year and I think every meal we went out for, we used the cash app and, and uh, people you know, chipped in and then we, and we just paid the bill on one person picked the rest of the tab up. So it is an absolute lifesaver. And the thing is Square Cash, I think where the real distinguishing feature is and, and where it makes me say, OK, Square Cash is the way to go going forward if it wasn't going to be for Bitcoin. And if you don't know what Bitcoin is, we're going to get to that in a future episode because I think a lot of the things I like about Square Cash, I also like about Bitcoin. It's just that it's not as, as prevalent. But the thing that is, sets Square Cash apart is it doesn't try to be the bank. It just facilitates the transfer, whereas PayPal tries to be the world's most frustrating bank that you're forced to use. Interestingly enough, Square has uh, square.github.io is a thing. And uh, at the very top of the website, it says, as a company who's built on open source technologies, here are some of the internally developed libraries that we have contributed back to the community. So not only is Square Cash a really cool thing, not only do they have great customer support, not only is it a fantastic product, they also they give back to the community, which is kind of cool. Now, to be fair, PayPal also contributes. So if you were partway through a piece of hate mail, you can finish that up and send it to Alan at jupiterbroadcasting.com because I'm already aware. I just don't care anymore. Again, one eight five five four five zero. That's one eight five five one eight five five four five zero. Noah. That's one eight five five four five zero six six two four. If you want in on this discussion, I'd love to hear your thoughts on PayPal or Square Cash or if you have a question, we'll take that. Tom is oh oh uh, that's not Tom. That's not Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I pulled you. I pulled you in the wrong thing. I clicked on the wrong button. I apologize. This is live radio. This is what happens. Tom is with us from Colorado. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hey, how's it going, Noah? Excellent. How question for you. Well, I'd heard you talk before about using Mix as a uh, DJ software, and I've been playing around with it quite a bit. I'm having trouble, though, getting it to integrate well with Jack. Um, on their site, it says it they, they prefer using uh, ALSA, but I, I need to be able to plug uh, like looping and uh, sampling and whatnot components into it. I was wondering if you'd run into that and if you had any sort of workaround. Sure. So Jack is one of those things that is phenomenally... Uh, customizable. It's very, very robust, and it can also be very, very daunting and frustrating if you've not used it before. I personally have stayed kind of away from Jack, not because I don't think it's a good product, not because I don't think that it can do some really amazing things, but because I simply don't have time to understand it. Um, I've actually, <laughs> being here in Seattle this week, we have done so many really cool things with audio that I think could be done in Jack, and so we might revisit this in a, in a 
you know, in a in a more, you know, deeper later in the future, I guess. But at the moment, what I'm doing is I do all of my loops and effects uh, in yeah, on hardware devices, and I feed those hardware devices into a physical mixer that's in the rack, and then I have. Um, Mix itself is on is uh, you know is running com- completely separate for that, and I know that's not a great solution, and I know that there's a, there's a substantial cost associated with doing that. Um, so you're definitely better off to to get Jack working if if you can. I tell you what, um, how about this? Let, let me put well, you the, back uh, on. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say the, the one feature that I was I was looking at as far as using Jack versus anything else really is being able to match beat per minute. Uh, or beats per minute between either two different pieces of software, or even I guess if you were using hardware, my question would be how how do you get your looper hardware to match what's going on in in mix? Are you just manually yeah, changing I, that? Yeah, so there's there's kind of a joke in the um, there, it's it's kind of a it's there's kind of a joke in the uh, in the DJ community about uh, about uh, are you talking about autosync? Um, not necessarily autosync, but. Uh, in Jack, they refer to the, the time transport. Basically, not necessarily auto matching the beats, but at least uh-huh. getting the beats per minute the same. I got you. I got you. Yeah, I um. So I I guess I do it. I guess the answer to your question is I do it by ear. And I, I should I should uh, give a disclaimer. This is it's not my day job, right? It's something I just do on the side. But um, what I'll do is I'll I will just drag the uh, I'll just drag the wheel until the until I can hear it in my earphones. And, and what I'll usually do is I'll cue up. Um, Whatever and this this is true whether I'm mixing inside of mix itself on a hardware console or if I have external you know an external loop or something like that and what I'll do is I will just I'll queue up one in the mixer and listen into my headphones and then I'll bring the other one up the whatever is going out to the house up and then I'll just drag the wheel until those beats are lining up and then I do my crossfade into whatever the next song is. So what what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you back on hold and I want to get your contact information so I'll have Sarah pick up and grab your contact. Uh, information so that we can get uh, some information from you. And then what I'll do is I'm going to dive into Jack a little bit more and I just want to have uh, your particulars on hand so we can go back to it. Um, and you'll be the first person I tell when when I kind of dive in and figure this stuff out. Chris is calling from Texas. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Am I allowed to give, am I allowed uh, to give our history or no? Sure, you can so Chris used to be my uh, was was a former boss of mine. Chris used to uh, to to manage a hotel that I worked for, and so uh, I got to know Chris. And it's actually kind of funny. the The backstory here is uh, the first call I got from Chris was Chris called up and he said, "Are you Noah?" And I said, "Yeah." And he goes, "You work for Alta Speed Technologies?" I said, "I do." And he goes, "Great. My name's Chris, and I manage such and such uh, you know property." And um, I just wanted to know when our contract is up with you because uh, we're going to take it uh, over to our uh, the IT guys that, that have been uh, managing all of our other places. And I said, well, you know, the way we do business here is we earn uh, every single service call. We earn our business. So we don't have you sign a contract. So you're not in a contract and you never will be. Um, basically, you're free to leave at any time. Um, but, you know, if you know, we'd be happy to work for, with you if that works. And if, if you want to go somewhere else, we'd be happy to help make that transition smooth. And uh, I don't know what happened, Chris, but <laughs> two years later, you never fired me. Oh, Linux. <laughs> Say again? Uh, Linux, our connection. Oh yeah, are we breaking up a little bit? So, uh, t- tell me a little bit about uh, tell me a little bit about the this PayPal twenty percent thing. Okay, my understanding that my boss in the past for hauling horses has used PayPal, 
And when you go to get your money out, you're not getting all of it, you know, because obviously at times the payments are 1000 1500 sometimes 2000 depending on mm-hmm. how far you're hauling a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been looking at the square, um, which you mentioned in, in the beginning there, but I'm wondering, mm-hmm. are there any open uh, any open source things like that? Obviously, we both have a strong background with Linux. Mm-hmm. So that's, um, I'm I- wondering, you know, is... Is there anything on open source, which might actually, you know, some of those are a lot cheaper to run and process? The closest thing I can think of is uh, a service called uh, Stripe. And I don't I wouldn't know. I don't know if I would say everything about it is open source, but they definitely contribute a lot to open source. And um, a lot of open source uh, projects and places use them. If you're not familiar with what Stripe is, it's basically a payment processor that can literally be integrated into anything. And so you can do something as simple as make a box on a website that charges a certain amount. You can have a button that that people click on and it charges a certain amount. You can do a subscription service that rebuilds a client on a monthly basis. Um, It's it's really, it's quite incredible. And and in fact, we're actually kind of playing with that at AltaSpeed right now um, to to kind of of deal with that. If you're hauling horses, so are you, would you be in charge of the payment system? Like you could institute your own payment system and have your clients pay you? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, basically, the options are they can give us a check, they can give mm-hmm. us cash, they can pay in advance with a credit card, or they can pay with a credit card on the spot. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if it's on the spot, which is real convenient for the customer, too, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something, having something like the Square is a good thing. But, you know, the thing, reason why I was looking to see if there was something that's more open source Obviously, with any software, if it's a proprietary type software, there's more overhead, right? And and the processing fees to for them to process those cards are going to be a little higher on a percentage basis. Yeah, the and the the way that the way that Square Cash does it is if it's a business, they they do a percentage. If they do a uh, or the Square Reader, it's it's a percentage. If it's a personal transaction, like it's just you giving money to a friend, then it's free. Um, uh, my if if I were in your boat, I guess what I would do is I would I would go ahead and uh, I would use Stripe. That's what I would do. I would integrate Stripe because the thing is, Stripe has the ability to grow, and so you're you're never going to get cut off at the legs and say, "Well, now my, I can't grow my business because I'm stuck." You know, at, at this point, if if taking payments on location is going to be a big thing for you, then I would stick with the Square Reader. Um, but I think Stripe actually has a slightly lower uh, percentage that they they take too. Um, in fact, you know, I even I think, and I could be wrong about this. Wouldn't be the first time, but I think you can even tie it to physical machines, so you can run credit cards traditionally. It's one of those. It, it's it is hands down one of the most flexible ways ways to take payments. Um, we're going to switch to a whole hog at Alta Speed. They offer a test mode, which basically that's kind of how we're using it right now, and it doesn't actually process anything, so you can run a card. Five 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 five, and you can see what would have happened had that card been accepted. So, absolutely fantastic! I'm very pleased with it. Links to both of those services will be in the show notes for you. Okay, switching gears. If you're hearing this broadcast on your computer, then you are or have in the past connected to the internet. You are communicating or have communicated in the past with a server. See, that's what us real geeks call computers connected to the other end of the internet. We don't call it the cloud. The cloud is a marketing term 
that we invented out of thin air a few years ago to encompass all of the network infrastructure that we need to store our files, to access our media, to back up our computer, to stream our content, all of these things that we do on the internet, through the internet, on servers, we now just call them cloud. Everything is just the cloud. You don't have to understand what the cloud is. You don't have to know how the cloud works. You don't have to know where the cloud is. You just have to know it's the cloud. That's it. And I've gone on mic pretty much on a weekly basis to brag on the cloud and anyone who uses it. Now, last week, I've spent, for the last week, I should say, I've spent the entire week in cloud-connected Chris's studio. And it's given me some very interesting perspective because the truth is, turns out it's pretty convenient to walk into a room and tell an electronic servant box to do something and it just happens. I walk in and I say, turn on the lights and she turns on the lights for me. I tell her to turn this device on and turns that device on. That's, it's actually kind of cool. And I guess I struggled with it the first couple days because I was like, well, how do I reconcile this now? How do I square the fact that I don't want cloud-connected devices in my house and yet this feels like what the future is? This feels like 2017. Now, I've spent years, literally years, before I, when I was, I think I was, I was probably 12 years old and we went to a hardware store and I found this kit for like 50 bucks. And I, I asked my mom, I said, I want this little, this kit. And she said, no. And we went back and forth about it. Finally, I think I finally got her, talked her into buying it for me. And basically it was, if you remember, X10. It was an X10 kit and it came with a controller and two lamp modules and a light switch. And this started a obsession and a hobby and an addiction that I have, I have to this years, or to this day. I spent years researching what light switches to put in my new house when we moved. Um, and I spent years doing trial and, er trial and error because what you found with X10 was the promise was big. You could automate all these things. You could turn all these things off with your computer. You could turn them on or off with a device. You know, at that time we didn't have speech recognition, but you could do it with closed contacts. But never delivered on the promise. And the first condo I have is actually kind of funny. You ever talk to my wife? This is probably why she hates automation. Well, she doesn't anymore, but she did. Is I would automate everything. I automated everything in my condo with X10. And uh, anyone who knows X10 knows that the dirty secret is it works like 95% of the time, which is really the worst possible thing to happen because if it worked half the time or none of the time, at least you would just expect when you push a light switch, nothing's going to happen. You kind of know to wrap it a couple times or whatever. But X10 worked reliably enough that you got into the habit of just pushing the button and expecting the light to be on. And then every once in a while, it just wouldn't come on. So was, I always described it as like a, a bad science project. And so after X10, I tried Insteon. And I, I mean, you name it, I tried it. And what I found from trying all of these different systems is that you need to have a – you need for every individual component, you need to have the best of the best. You can't have one company to do it all. So that was a big problem. Of, that was a big promise of HAI, right? It was it was going to do all of the things. It was going to do the light switches and the security system and the thermostat and everything. But there no, no one company is the best at everything. So the best company to make light switches is Lutron, and they specialize in making the best light switches known to man. And you pay for them, but they're really good. And you look at carry systems, and they make the best door entry systems. And you know they're very expensive, but they're very good. And then you look at Honeywell, who's known for their home security systems. Um, you know, but Honeywell doesn't necessarily make you. Know, no, actually, Honeywell does make RFID entry systems, but um, they don't necessarily – they're not in necessarily the automation stuff. That's not their forte. Their forte is security. And at somehow, at the end of the day, all of this stuff has to work together to get proper home automation. Now, I didn't have to look 
at the back of the box to see if Amazon was going to save my day by offering a service that I could connect to. I didn't have to Google a third-party service to connect one cloud-connected device to another cloud-connected service so that I could change the settings on one device from another device. I didn't have to do any of that because I was purchasing equipment that was designed with interoperability in mind without any sort of service or cloud. If tomorrow Lutron, Honeywell, if they all go out of business, I will be fine. In fact, I will be fine for the next 20 years because all of my equipment is either communicating over the LAN or over a local, a local like closed contact circuit wire. So, for example, the garage door is just controlled by shorting a pair of circuits, uh, a circuit. Now, some of you are saying, well, Noah, these cloud-connected devices, they're so cheap that if they ever aren't supported for any reason, I'll just dump them and I'll move on to something else. Now, yesterday, in the midst of setting something up for last, I inadvertently set a box on top of a smart plug, and the light bulb went off, and pun intended. One of the things that I'm actually pretty proud of in my home automation setup is that it's not something that is added onto the house. It is an integral part of the very building of the house. It, it, the, we built all of the stuff into the house as we were remodeling it, and every switch, every outlet, every control point in the entire house is centrally managed. Now I did some research and Wemo makes light switches that can be controlled by these cloud connected services. So at the time of this episode, it is $47.63 from Amazon for one of these Wemo light switches. And you can get a few grand in light switches if you just did, you know, a 2,500 square foot house. I'll be the first to admit that I probably have a lot more than that tied up in my automation system. But there is no one company to pull the rug out from under me so it becomes worth my time to finally tune every last device and schedule every last sensor in that house to make sure it works flawlessly because it's going to be there for the next 20 years. And I know what you're thinking. It's going to be fine. Nothing bad's going to happen that we can trust the cloud. But I have an article for you. Business Insider Headline. Maker of internet-connected garage door disables a customer's device over a bad review. There's a new dystopian risk to using internet-connected gadgets. If you complain to the company that made it, you might remotely kill, they might remotely kill your product. This is what happened to one customer who bought a gadget of internet-connected garage door opener. After he complained about it online and left a negative review, he got an unpleasant surprise. The garage door service had bricked his device. The customer had left a comment on the support form complaining about technical issues and wrote, I wonder what kind of piece of junk I just purchased here. The, they followed up, they then followed up with a negative review. Junk. Do not waste your money. The iPhone app is a piece of junk. It crashes constantly. The startup company that obviously has not performed proper quality assurance tests on their product. Well, Garage Gadget didn't like it. And so the company disabled the disgruntled customer's device and denying its access to its servers. They announced they had done so on their form. Martin, uh, Martin, the abusive language here and in your negative Amazon review submitted minutes after experiencing a technical difficulty only demonstrates your poor impulse control. I'm happy to provide the technical support to the customers on my Saturday night, but I'm not going to tolerate any tantrums. At this time, your only option is to return the garage git to Amazon for a refund. Your unit ID 2F0036 will be denied service from our server. So, yes, this is a smaller company who clearly has no idea what the letters P and R stand for. And we could have a discussion about why the company should make a better product. We could have a discussion on 
a better way the company could have handled it when somebody had technical support. We could have a discussion on how companies should have business hours where they expect to take technical support calls. And if you open yourself up to providing technical support on a Saturday night from somebody who purchased your product that isn't working correctly, you should expect them to not be very happy about it. After all, he's spending his Saturday night sending up a product that he was that is not working correctly. But that's not what I took away from the story. What I took away from the story and what I want to focus on here is the fact that when you rely on the cloud, you are at the mercy of these manufacturers and the services that it relies on to function. Again, one 450 I'd love to get some thoughts on this. Would you put one of these in your house? If you would, why? I flat out refuse to build these things into my house. I flat out refuse to put these things into my home. A bunch of these things that that only work as long as every single company that has every single service that the product relies on stays up. Now here, after being here for a week, here is where I've decided I'm willing to make a small compromise. Like I said at the top of the hour, being here has convinced me beyond a shadow of a doubt that this stuff here is actually pretty convenient. And I literally feel like I'm now living in 2017. I feel like we have arrived at the future. All the things that I, I dreamt about with Jarvis when I saw Iron Man and stuff, I feel like all of that is coming to life. I can talk to my technology and my technology can hear me and understand me and do things for me and talk back to me. I, I did some research online and many of the big name companies, they go to de facto standards in home automation. They actually already have modules that will interface with my local non-cloud connected, you know, closed circuit system. So essentially, I, and I, I, I get it. I've just spent the last 10 minutes ripping the cloud apart. And now, uh, and now I'm going to say that it, but here's what I'm getting at. If Amazon ceases to exist tomorrow, what am I really out? This connection bridge, which is what is made for, for my home automation system is $200 plus the Amazon, you know, let's say I do the Echo Dot is 50 bucks. So I'm out, so $250 in. Now, none of the light switches in the house, none of the security systems in the house, none of the RFID door entry systems in the house, none of that is, is dependent on a service, is not dependent on it being compatible with Amazon. If tomorrow Amazon just goes away and there's no more API, all of my stuff continues to work. All I'm doing is adding voice on the end of it. I'm just kind of piggybacking it off the end of the, the home automation system. So I'm out 250 bucks, big whoop. So I guess we'll see how this unfolds. But at the moment, I feel like I'm at a point where I can accept a small limited cloudiness as long as it has no actual ramifications if it ceases to exist or if, you know, if it gets broken. I'm certainly not going to automate my garage door so I, where I park my vehicles so I can't get out of my own house if the cloud goes down for, yeah, it's just ridiculous. So uh, if tomorrow Amazon does what the what uh, this garage door company did to that customer, then I'll have a $250 paperweight. And I mean, that's unfortunate, but at least my home automation system isn't at risk. At least it's not every single light switch in my entire house. And my entire home automation system doesn't have a single point of failure. I like that too. one 450 noah That's one 450 Bob is with us from Fargo, North Dakota. Hi, Bob. How are you? Oh, doing good yourself. Excellent. How can I help? I was just going to comment on that home automation. One project you might be interested in looking at would be that homeassistant.io. Yes. It's an open source implementation of many of those. And what's really slick about them is we're running it here at the home. 
um, you can use like those Phillips hues or you can use those Wemos and things like that. But if you VLAN them off, they no longer need that cloud access. You can do it all local. See, that that really appeals to me. And, and you know, the, I have no problem with uh, with Philips that has the ability to be connected to the cloud, but it talks over the local. It, it's 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 able to be it's able to function. It's just using TCP to to communicate. And like you said, you can VLAN that off. So it kind of exists in its own little world. If you're really paranoid, you could probably just put it on its own little router. Um, you know, that yeah, to me seems like a really great way to here. go. Yeah, we've got it set up here on its own little VLAN, no internet access at all. And what's really slick is it, um, there's a design distribution that can run on those Raspberry Pis. And it does have the voice control option, just like those um, Amazon products and things like that, that you can use through any HTML5 compatible interface or just have it constantly listening. So it gives you sort of the best of both worlds without having to open yourself up. That's absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for, for bringing that to my attention. I really appreciate it, I, and I appreciate the call. I'll look into that a little bit more um, as I kind of dive into my uh, to the next generation of home automation, I guess. Hey, guys, uh, we need your help to spread the word of the show. Make sure to check out the Ask Noah dashboard at AskNoahShow.com. Follow us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. Joel was poking around on the Ask Noah dashboard, and he wrote in to say, uh, hey, Noah, I would like some tips when it comes to buying used tech on eBay. There seems to be a stigma that eBay shopping is more risky than buying from a reputable source such as Amazon or a brick-and-mortar store. How do you deal with no OEM support on the products that you buy on eBay, and how do you prevent being scammed? Well, Joel, I'll tell you, It first of all, it's pretty hard to get flat-out scammed on eBay. If the product doesn't match the description, the seller has to refund your money, and eBay will force them to do that. So... I, I guess the, the tip here is read, 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 read the description. Read very carefully the, the description. And people really, what they do is they get themselves into a jam because they don't read what the seller wrote about the item. Or they assume that because something isn't in the description that, that, that you know, it's, it's the way they want it to be. So if something isn't explicitly mentioned, ask them. Get it in writing. And then if they tell you something that's incorrect... And then you're protected and then you can just simply send it back. So, for example, if it says it's in pretty good condition and you're the kind of person that gets really upset about a, a few cosmetic scratches and then you should ask. You should say, hey, are there any scratches on that item? Now, personally, the truth is for the amount of money that I save and it's usually I would if I had to guess, I'd say most of the things I buy, I'm probably saving around 50 percent. I'm OK with a couple little cosmetic dings on, you know, let's say audio equipment, right? Because typically I'm going to put some dings in the equipment anyway. And so like take a um, – let me think of a good example. So uh, microphone would be a, a good example, right? If I have a microphone, um, if it has a couple of dings, as long as the microphone functions properly, as long as it sounds proper, there really isn't a lot of difference in taking a microphone and buying it brand new and putting it in our rental cabinet and a couple other people use it and then they bring it back and then I take it out and use it for something else. Or I could just buy that microphone used to begin with. Um, and again, if it doesn't sound right, or if there's a you know a huge gouge in the uh, you know in the in the in the uh, speaker pop filter or something like that, then I'm going to send that back. And of course, I'm looking at the pictures and I'm paying attention to the description. I'm reading everything they say, and uh, I'm asking questions. I highly recommend purchasing things off of eBay. In fact, if you're okay, the, the thing that you have to be okay with is you have to be okay with waiting a little bit for the item. You have to be. Okay with waiting for that perfect price point. And I'll give you an example. I bought so my primary ham radio, and I bought it off of eBay. It's a Yezu HT uh, 1000 Mark V. And I think I paid like $1,800 by the time I got done with all the filters I wanted. So I saved a substantial amount of money, if you, if you know what, that, uh, what, those, what those are going for. 
technology I won't buy on eBay. I don't buy displays. I don't buy keyboards. I don't buy mice. For the most part, those are the kind of things that, you know, they A, they get heavy use, and there's a big difference between buying those things used and new, the feel of them, the look of them, and you don't save that much money anyway. Um, so, you know, if you need a newer desktop, though, or if you maybe need another, another laptop or a new-to-you laptop, every laptop, with the exception of my 260 and now my 270, has been purchased on eBay, and I've had zero problems with it. And again, there's a couple marks on the uh, on the outside of case, but I would have put those there anyway. And I'll give you another really hot tip if you're buying things on eBay. Bidnapper.com. Bidnapper, and again, this is <laughs> they don't pay me anything to say this. Bidnapper is a service that basically what they do is you put in, you link it to your eBay account, and you can go and look for items that you want on eBay. You find the item you want. And if you're familiar with what the concept of sniping is, it's basically when you place your bid at the very last possible second so it doesn't drive the price up. Because the problem is if you have a seven-day auction and the price starts at $1, and then on day two of the auction, somebody bids $10, now the price is $10. Then the third day, somebody bids $50, now the price is $50. By the end of that seven days, the price has gone way up to like $150, $200, whatever. So what you can do is you can kind of work with other buyers to get an item at a lower cost for whoever wins. And it's really who's ever the fastest. And so what a lot of people that buy a lot of stuff on eBay do is they do what they call sniping. And basically you wait until three seconds or two seconds or one second before the auction is over and then you make your bid. And because everyone is bidding at the the last possible second, there's there's fewer time, there's less time for that price to get driven up. Um, And what Bidnapper does is it takes it kind of to the next level. So I can sketch because I don't have time to sit there and wait for the second to go down. Plus, my heart just about jumps out of my chest. And I've also seen when people go bid on eBay, they'll end up paying more sometimes for an item than it's actually worth just because it turns into a game. It gamifies the, the you know the purchasing of it. So you link it, you link Bidnapper to your eBay account, and then you can add the auctions that you're watching of these items, and you put in the maximum amount that you're willing to pay for that item. So you can take some time and really think about it and say, if it was, you know, 180, would I pay it? If it was 185, would I buy it? If it was 190, would I buy it? Uh, well, yeah, maybe that, this. Okay, that's really what I'm willing to pay. You put that in Bidnapper, you submit the transaction, and basically what Bidnapper will do is it will watch, and at the very last possible second, Bidnapper places your bid. And um, if you, they, I, it's, I think it's, they charge you per per win. So you get, you know, you pay a certain amount of uh, cents per, you know, every time you win an auction, but you don't pay if you don't lose, if you lose the auction. So there's, there's no cost to trying to win a bunch of things. So what I'll do oftentimes is I will go in and say, I want to buy, let's say I want to buy an an X270 and I'll go on eBay and I'll find every X270 that I'd be willing to purchase. And of course I've read the description. I've looked at the pictures. I've asked any relevant questions. I add all of those to my watch list on eBay. I go back into Bidnapper and then I'll put in the amounts that I'm willing to pay for each one of those computers, submit all those transactions, and then if I win, I go back in and I'll cancel the rest of them. If I don't win, then I just I wait for the next one, wait for the next one, wait for the next one. And it allows me to kind of purchase, you know, way ahead of time. So that's my hot tip for today is Bidnapper. It's a really terrific service. I use it all the time. And again, I would really recommend buying technology off of eBay. It's a great way to try different things out without having to suck up the full purchase cost because if there's anything that we hate about technology, it's the fact that the price drops like a tank, right? Thanks for tuning in this hour. We appreciate having you. That brings us to the end of the show. We'll be back next Monday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thank you to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, Rakai, our video editor. We'll hand you off to Crosspoint coming up next on Locus Radio 88.3 LPFM.